Hello, and welcome to Banter, the official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Phoebe Keller, the head of AEI's media department, and I'm here with AEI President Robert Doerr, and we'll be your new Banter co-hosts. Each week, we'll take you inside our think tank for conversations with leading policymakers and thinkers about today's pressing policy issues. Thanks for tuning in. So Phoebe, you know, we've been doing this for a couple of weeks with a couple of guests, but I don't really know much about you. Where'd you come from? So I'm, I'm the new head of the media department here at AEI. So I think that's a good angle to have on the podcast because what I like to think we do in our department is kind of boil down some of these in the weeds policy issues that the scholars work on and kind of try to zoom out and connect it to what real people are talking about and can understand. So I think that's what we're trying to do on banter. A lot of these policy questions and discussions are really important for the country, especially now. So I think we're trying to you know, make them really accessible to real people who are listening and who have questions about these things. And like me, you're from New York, although yes. not New York City. No, just suburbia. <laughs> Rye, Rye, New York. Exactly. And you even spent a little time on Long Island. You go to Shelter Island in the summertime. I do. I know. Back from there. Well, welcome back to D.C. and your new job. And you're a kind of a foreign and defense person originally, or what yeah, was your yeah. career at AI like? I've been here for a bit over two years now, and I've been mostly working with our foreign and defense policy scholars. I was a government major at Cornell, so that's kind of my original interest. But we always say that, you know, working at AI is almost like getting a grad degree because you just learn so many things that, you know, you never knew before. So I feel like I've rounded out foreign policy, but a lot of other areas, too. Oh, Phoebe, you just said the best thing. Cornell. My mother <laughs> is from Watkins Glen, oh, okay. and, which is not far. The Finger Lakes. Yep, Finger Ithaca. Lakes. When I was a commissioner in New York State, we used to call Tompkins County. Yep, Tompkins yeah, County. Yeah, the socialist county of Tompkins yes, County. Exactly. Very liberal over there. It is. Yeah. It's quite a bubble. There's the college bubble and there's the Ithaca Tompkins County bubble. So every way you cut it. <laughs> but you did you like Cornell? Was it fun? I did. It was cold, but it was fun. <laughs> <laughs> big cliffs. Don't they yeah, have big, 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 big hills. Uh, it's, you know, they say like uphill both ways. That's the, <laughs> that's the Cornell joke. Okay. Well. I want everyone to understand that what we're aspiring to here on this podcast is a little intergenerational dynamic. You know, Phoebe, if you can't tell, is a little bit younger than me. Oh my um, yeah, <laughs> hopefully not in spirit. I think this will be fun. My goal is to celebrate and promote the work of AI scholars. We are a great institution in that we have all these really smart, wonderful people doing great work. And your job and my job is to get their work to be heard and listened to and read by more and more Americans. Because if it is, then our country will be better informed, at least, and hopefully make better choices. Yeah. You'll take that? Is yes, that okay with acceptable. you? Acceptable. <laughs> <Okay>. Good answer. <laughs> you all pass. Right. All right. <laughs> That's the dynamic we're looking for. All right. Joining us on Banter today is Scott Winship. He's the new director of AEI's Poverty Studies Program and a resident scholar at AEI. Scott most recently served as the executive director of the JEC, where he worked on the Social Capital Project with Chairman Mike Lee. He's previously studied economic opportunity and social mobility at a few research institutions, including the Manhattan Institute, the Brookings Institution, and Pew Charitable Trust. Thanks for joining the podcast, Scott. Oh, pleasure to be here. Thanks, Phoebe. Yes, and thanks for being here, Scott. And as you know, and as many people know, AI has been trying to recruit you for the last six years, and we finally succeeded. <laughs> so it's, you know, I felt like I was chasing you down the street in Connecticut Avenue on various days. But I thought we'd start out, Scott, by you giving us and our listeners a sort of, how did you come to be a, a scholar of poverty studies at AI? What's your path to get here? Yeah, it's been a, a long and crooked path. 
Thanks again for having me on. It's great to be on the show and thrilled to be at AEI, of course. Let's see where to begin. So I'll start way back in 1992, you know, when I was a freshman in college, the LA riots happened and the younger listeners you know, may have to look it up at this point, I guess. But it was essentially very much like the climate that we've had in 2020, where there was some police violence against an African-American. They were then acquitted in court and sparked several days of, of rioting in Los Angeles and some other cities, if I recall. And that really made an impression on me. I was a biomedical engineering major at the time and wasn't really enjoying that. Ended up kind of taking a different path and going into sociology. And really, having grown up in a rural area, I just became very interested in urban poverty. And from there, you know, I was pretty lefty in college and coming out of college. I worked for the community organization ACORN for a few months. It was my first job out of college. Eventually, I went to grad school where I studied under Christopher Jenks, who's been a really influential person for my thinking. And he and I worked on a long project on welfare reform while I was there. And both of us sort of expecting that, that we were going to write an important paper that would show what no one else had shown yet, really, which is that welfare reform had had a really negative impact on the living standards of poor families and, and single mothers and their kids. And we ran the numbers and we were looking at food problems and whether those had gone up or down over time since welfare reform was passed in 1996. And to both of our surprises, we found that food problems had gotten rarer among single mother families. They'd done so at a faster rate than they'd gotten rarer among married couple families. And sort of however we tortured the data, like this was just sort of a fact. It was clear as day in the data. And that really influenced my thinking quite a bit myself, made me realize that a lot of times the conventional wisdom around poverty, which tends to be dominated by, by folks on the left, just turns out not to be right. And in fact, the conventional wisdom becomes the conventional wisdom because the field is, is sort of dominated by folks who are on the center left. So that really, I would say, started me towards a little bit more humility in terms of being aware of what I didn't know and not making a lot of assumptions I had before. But I still was, was center left. And I, I came to D.C., finished my Ph.D., worked for Third Way, which is a really good center left think tank for a time. I worked at the Charitable Trust and as the research manager for the Economic Mobility Project there got more interested in economic mobility specifically. That led to a job at the Brookings Institution working for Bell Sahill and eventually ended up at the Manhattan Institute. Found myself in a center-right organization for the first time and sort of became a registered independent at the time, which for me was a big deal. Ended up on the front cover of National Review, which I was terribly uncomfortable with at the time, but it ended up being a really good fit. I'd always had kind of a lot of concerns about unintended consequences and perverse incentives and things like that. I didn't love Obamacare, had gotten into a big debate with folks in the Obama administration about economic mobility and inequality. So it, it ended up being a lot of things aligning in the reform conservatives, becoming sort of an influential group at that time, and have been sort of on the center-right world ever since. It's not an unusual story, Scott. We've AI is filled with people that started on the left side of the aisle and, and moved through thinking and studying and evaluating data to a different perspective. So welcome. You're joining a group <laughs> that has a lot of people like you in that regard. Just before we go on to the next question, I, Christopher Jenks is, for our listeners, should know his writing. He's a beautiful writer about these issues. What was it like to work with him? Give us a little sense of him. So we don't want to 
pass over the mention yeah. of his name without a little more Hosanna in his direction. Yeah, no, he's, he's just an incredible thinker. More than anybody I've ever met, he's somebody who's able to start with a viewpoint, figure out how he can apply data to see whether that's right or not. And if it turns out he was wrong, then so much the worse for his original idea. And he goes where the, where the data takes him. He politically, I think, is you know, well to my and your left, but he has really been a straight shooter on a lot of these issues related to whether poverty has fallen, how middle-class incomes are doing, the way that I think about social life in general, I don't think would even be the same had I not crossed paths with them. So we're going to go back to poverty, but let's start with inequality for just a minute. Because when I first came to AI, I went across the street and had a cup of coffee with another great friend of ours who participates in these debates, Ron Haskins at Brookings, who was the staff director of the committee that really put together the welfare reform bill and has written important works on that. And he told me that you were the smartest guy in Washington because you had taken down the Gatsby curve. And of course, I didn't know what he was talking about. Why don't you tell us? What was that about? Yeah. So I I had not been at Brookings that long. This was towards the end of the very end of 2011. So the, the 2012 presidential race was kind of shaping up. It was clear Mitt Romney was going to be the Republican nominee. And it was clear that the Obama team was going to run against him by portraying him as being kind of this uber capitalist man of the of the one percent. Piketty and Saez, you know, had entered into the public conversation at that point. And so Obama's Council of Economic Advisors, which at the time was led by Alan Kruger, the late Alan Kruger, had started putting together a bunch of arguments about why inequality was bad for middle class and poor Americans. And in December of 2011, President Obama made a speech arguing that economic mobility had dropped over time during the same period where inequality had risen. And everyone sort of agreed that inequality has risen. I think that's actually become a little bit more controversial in the years since. But I had just come from Pew, where I'd been studying mobility for several years, and I had never seen any evidence that economic mobility had fallen. There was a 15-year-old body of evidence that it hadn't really changed that much at all at the same time that inequality was on the rise. And so I dug in a little bit into where these numbers were coming from, and it turned out they were, they were based on a little bit of smoke and mirrors. They were kind of modeled under a bunch of assumptions. They weren't taking real data on, on whether people had moved up or down versus their parents, and kind of debunked that, and it went away, and I sort of did a little victory dance and thought I was done with it. Well, the next month, Kruger presented at the Center for American Progress, the big center-left think tank, a new analysis where he basically plotted countries on a chart. And on one axis was how much inequality they had, and on the other axis was how immobile people were in those countries. And there was a very clear relationship. Countries that had more inequality had less mobile people. They, they tended to be stuck in the same place as their parents were in the income distribution. And that was at least based on real data and real. I mean, there is, a, there is this strong correlation. It turned out that the measure of mobility that they were using, though, showed worse mobility when inequality was higher. And so in some ways, they were just showing a relationship that was baked into the cake. If the United States had higher inequality growth over time than Denmark, then this measure of mobility that they were using would look worse. 
And so big surprise, these two measures were correlated with each other. And I kind of pointed that out and a few other flaws with their analyses and generally just tried to argue, you know, this is first thing you learn in an undergraduate stats class is that correlation isn't causation. That wasn't received well. There was a back and forth between myself and several scholars, including some at Brookings. But in the end, I think probably not until years later, actually, I think it was pretty widely agreed that this was not great evidence that well, increases in inequality were going to reduce mobility. Yeah. And that's one of the things that the data and the, and the issue is interesting to us, but the bravery and the guts to take on something and challenge it and then have the debate work itself out. That's what is exciting about your work, Scott, is you're not afraid to raise issues that sometimes are brushed aside. Before we go further, I think it would be helpful for me, at least, if you told us what was the measurement of inequality, of mobility and poverty that you think we should look to and how are they different and which is most important in terms of making progress on? Yeah, that's a great question. Very complicated one. For economic mobility, I would say that a lot of the issues have been worked out pretty well in the work of Raj Chetty more recently. Raj Chetty's research wasn't out yet at the time that I was fighting with the Council of Economic Advisors, but he later put out a body of of work where he emphasized the importance of relative mobility. And relative mobility essentially means if everybody is getting richer over time, but nobody's really trading places, so the, the poorest parents end up with the poorest kids and vice versa, then that's not a society that has high relative mobility. It could have high absolute mobility because everybody's richer over time than they were, and both are important. But I think if you're concerned about inequality and whether it's hurting poor kids, I think what you're most concerned about is that poor kids are unable to become non-poor adults. That's really about relative mobility. So Chetty's team really raised the importance of, of that as a measurement. I think that the measure used by the CEA folks for a long time, academics thought that was a measure of relative mobility. And I've tried to show in papers since that that's just not the case. Obviously, if nothing changes except that inequality increases and mobility looks worse, that has nothing to do with, with whether people are stuck in the same position that they used to be. And it just means that the richer, richer, and maybe the poorer, poorer, but it doesn't say anything about training places. I think this measure that Raj Chetty uses is a pretty good one, which is called the rank-rank slope, technically. There's other ways to look at mobility that are easier to understand, such as if you start in the bottom fifth, say, if your parents are in the bottom fifth, what are the chances that you are in the bottom fifth yourself when you're an adult? That's a pretty good way to think about mobility, I think. For poverty, the official poverty rate has a number of problems that are pretty well understood at this point, and AEI researchers like Bruce Meyer and Rich Burkhauser. Um, Nick Eberstadt was one of the early. Nick Eberstadt, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Have really been emphasizing these problems. They don't include the most important ways that public policy tries to reduce poverty. Those programs simply aren't counted as income. And so lo and behold, they don't help reduce the poverty rate at all. There are technical issues around inflation whereby essentially the line that we draw that determines you know, if you're below this poverty line, it means you're poor. We tend to sort of like steadily increase that line over time without realizing it so that the threshold for escaping poverty actually gets a little bit harder and harder every year, whereas it, it should just be kind of a constant but, standard but, of living. So, but poverty line is 
material well-being measure. People above a, a minimum material well-being. It might not make them, you know, not struggle or not face hardships, but they're not destitute. They're not struggling for shelter and clothing and food. Mobility is this, the chances of you born in the lowest quintile to move up to the middle or the top quintile. And then what's inequality? Yeah, inequality, you know, is just a kind of point in time, how much richer are the rich versus the poor. And it's really important to keep that distinct from mobility and poverty. One way to think about it is we might have a world where hedge fund managers make a lot more than security guards. But if the kid of a security guard has as good a chance to become a hedge fund manager as the kid of a hedge fund manager does, then you know we might not worry at all about that. There are a lot of really good reasons to pay hedge fund managers more than we pay security guards, regardless of if you think it's just or not. But certainly a world of equal access to sort of well-paying positions is a world that's very different than where we have a lot of point-in-time inequality, but we also have unequal opportunities to reach those positions. So I want to stick on this because this is like all I think about for my last 20 years of my career. So just stay yeah. on this for a minute. So we got these three measurements. We have ways of calculating them. How are we doing and which is the one you think we need to pay the most attention to? Yeah. So I guess starting with inequality, inequality has grown over time. I would say that's probably 90% for sure. There are two ways of thinking about inequality. There's kind of the top 1%, which has become the way that everybody talks about it at this point. Top 1% has received more income over time. It probably has not gone up as much as Piketty and Saez and more recently Gabriel Zuckman have claimed. For people that don't know, this is sort of a trio of French economists who have basically made a career over the last 20 years of arguing that, that the top 1% is kind of pulling away and from everybody else and receiving all the gains. Really important work over the last few years that's been done by David Splinter and Jerry Otten has shown that that's probably been exaggerated. Rich Burkhauser, again, has been a really important person in that area. So inequality has risen, but not as much as, as we think. And even if it has, honestly, there's not been a real strong case made yet that that's a societal problem, that there are important consequences that flow from rising inequality. So there, I wouldn't say we've made progress, but I wouldn't say there's necessarily a problem to make progress on. With mobility, we haven't made much progress at all. There's practically no research showing that there have been significant increases in intergenerational mobility over, say, 30 or 50 years. And there's some evidence to suggest that it was increasing earlier in the 20th century. I don't put a ton of stock into that, but there's nothing that really shows that things are improving over time. Where we've made a lot of progress, I would say, and, and, and again, even here, you sort of have to caveat it, which we can get into. But in terms of hardship reduction, poverty reduction, the United States has just made massive strides. The best measures you know, by folks like Bruce Meyer and Rich Burkhauser and some of the stuff that I've done on child poverty, we're talking about you know, levels of hardship that 50% of the population was at in the early 1960s, now being experienced by maybe 5% of the population, just dramatic declines. How did we do that? Well, it's a complicated story. We, we had an expanded safety net that has reduced point-in-time hardship. If you give people more money, then you're going to reduce hardship in the short run. But of course, there are unintended consequences to having a more generous safety net. And so it's very much a live debate about the extent to which we'd have 
better outcomes to show for economic mobility, for instance, if, if not for the mobility impeding aspects of our safety net. So the way I think about it, first of all, I want to be clear, in all of these measures, you agree that it's important to make calculations about income or resources available in households that include the value of transfer payments and the value of health insurance. Right. We agree on that, right? That if you want to be fair, it's nice to know what people can earn on their own. But if we're going to have transfer payments, we ought to be able to take them into account. And isn't it true that sometimes in looking at this data, a common mistake of the media is that they just forget to include that income in calculations? Or am I wrong about that? Well, so generally people take their lead from the official measure, which the Census Bureau I believe is statutorily required to use the measure that they've got. And that does include the aspects of the safety net that involves giving cash to people. So it includes unemployment benefits, for instance. It includes cash benefits to single mothers and their families. That's a program called TANF now. It includes disability payments, for instance. But interestingly, all of the ways that the safety net has gotten more generous over the last 25 years involve programs that don't give cash to people. The SNAP program, which used to be called food stamps, has gotten more generous over time and is basically like cash, except you can't spend the benefits on anything other than food. But that's not included in in the official poverty measure. Tax credits that we give to the working poor, like the earned income tax credit, are not included. Housing assistance is not included health insurance benefits, you know, which have just been a huge part of, of the expanding safety net, really over 30 or 40 years, are not included as income. So a lot of analysts and journalists just naively use the poverty me- the official poverty measure without any indication that it's not actually incorporating the most important things about the safety net that have gotten more generous over time. And when they use that, they then have advocates who say, how are we going to solve it? suggesting transfer payments, yeah. which which already exist, and they didn't acknowledge that they are not counted. It's absolutely right. And there's this weird thing, the left sort of doesn't include them and then says, we need more transfers. And the right actually does sort of its own its own thing that's a little bit weird, where they, they don't include them and they say, oh, we spent all this money on, on yes, poverty, right. and, but, yeah. but we lost the war on poverty because poverty hasn't, hasn't gone down. It's like, well, you know, we just spent a lot of money on things that aren't included in the, in the official measure. So, okay, I'm taking up all the time. It's not really fair to Phoebe. I get that. And and that's okay, Phoebe, but our guest is in the body of work. I know. I gonna, I'm the odd one out here never having been the head of AEI's poverty program. So, <laughs> yes, one of three. <laughs> uh, but you're welcome to pipe yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, I think that breakdown, I think, is really helpful. From an outside perspective, I think that economic mobility, poverty, and inequality really get get thrown together, I think, especially inequality and mobility. And so I think I wanted to pull out a little bit, Scott, what you mentioned that inequality kind of as an independent variable that might be, you know, you see perhaps as more distinct from these other two, the levels of inequality in the U.S., which, you know, people are always commenting on how, how wide that's getting in and of itself is not necessarily an issue. And I think that's pretty counterintuitive to a lot of people. So I'm, I'm interested to hear a little more about that. Yeah. This is something I've spent a fair amount of time, although it's been a, it's been a few years since I've kept up with the literature, I'll, I'll confess. But I did a big piece for Yuval Levin, who now, very exciting, is also at AEI for his journal, National Affairs, called something like The Overstated Costs of Inequality, I think. 
and essentially just kind of went through everything that, that I could find that had been written on why inequality supposedly is one of the major problems that, that the country faces. And the claims just all sort of fall apart. And I should say, like, this is an incredibly difficult question to answer convincingly. And so part of the problem is just like, even if it were true, it would be really hard to show that convincingly. Right. But, you know, just some basic comparisons, you know, if you look since the 1960s at the periods that have that have had the best income growth to the top 1%, those turn out to be the exact same periods that had the best income growth for the middle class and for lower income Americans and vice versa. The worst periods for the top 1% have been the worst periods for folks lower down. If you look across countries, it's not the case that countries that have lower inequality have richer middle classes or or have less poverty. If anything, they tend to have slightly richer middle classes and slightly less poverty. The Great Gatsby curve that Robert was talking about falls apart pretty quickly when you when you dig into that. But there are just all these claims, especially around the financial crisis, that inequality was cause of that. And they tend just not to be based on very strong evidence at all. And, and so I've tried to, to show that in the past. I'm actually pretty agnostic about whether inequality does have some of these costs. I think even if it did, there are real trade-offs mm-hmm. to trying to reduce inequality that potentially I think could be bad. And at the end of the day, it is a valid perspective to just feel like, well, you know, if, if the market has determined that hedge fund managers you know, make a lot of money, then we shouldn't feel like that's just money that we can appropriate for whatever purposes we want. So it ends up being, yeah, just a much clear-cut issue than is typically portrayed on the, on the center and left. So let's, we take inequality and say there's some some complexities there. Let's set that aside for a minute. It's over-exaggerated as a problem. Poverty, we've made great progress in. Material well-being has risen. People are, at least have more material well-being than they did in the past. And that's been a combination of a safety net and supports for working people and more employment. But let's go to mobility. There we, people aren't able to move out of the bottom 20% at a rate we'd like or would be happier with, which contradicts a sort of, you know, American value that we're a country where people can move up. I guess the first question is, what do you think we should do to increase mobility in the United States? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's one that I really sort of hope to make one of the more central ones of poverty studies at AEI, which I'm tweaking the direction of very gingerly, given the So I would say there are, there are a few things. And, and, and again, I'll sort of go back to this point of, of absolute mobility and relative mobility being important. Absolute mobility, meaning, you know, even if people are kind of stuck in the same places, if janitors are much better off today than janitors in the past, then that's an important thing as well. And so I think I would start by building off a couple places where I think conservatives have been really good in the past. And and one is just emphasizing a pro-growth policy agenda, whether that involves lower marginal tax rates. I think the case that lowering corporate tax rates is probably a lot more productive at this point than lowering top individual tax rates, reducing regulations, things like that, kind of a, a lot of bread and butter Republican policies that would expand economic growth, I think, are a good good place to start. I also think conservatives have been fantastic in terms of emphasizing a pro-work safety net. Welfare reform you know, is just a perfect example, I think, of a program that conservatives really get to take credit for that really did 
reduce poverty and and hopefully will increase upward mobility. It's still a little too soon to be able to say that one way or another. We're 25 years on almost. We'll know sooner rather than later, I think, what the mobility effects of, of welfare reform were. But essentially, encouraging more people to work and become become more independent, getting rid of disincentives to save and to marry, I think are just going to be good for mo- mobility in the long run. So it would certainly build on the lessons of welfare reform too. And then I think there's there's an area that's a little bit uncharted territory for conservatives, but that I think we need to sort of start looking harder at. And I think I sort of think of this problem of entrenched poverty. So poverty over multiple generations, poverty that's geographically concentrated. And there, you know, I think we have to think more creatively about expanding access to high mobility neighborhoods. I think we have to think more about trying to find some interventions in early childhood that help poor kids. There are already these giant test score gaps between rich and poor kids by the time they start school. So I think I think we need to figure out a way to reduce those inequalities. We've got to figure out a way to restore marriage, especially in places where it's you know, more or less disappeared as an institution. And I think we've got to work to restore faith in institutions among groups that are experiencing particularly low economic mobility, African-Americans in particular. You think about things like, I know, Robert, you and, and Ian on a past episode, we're talking about policing reform to sort of reduce the ability of police unions to sort of protect the bad apples among them. I think things like that are incredibly important for restoring faith in institutions like law enforcement and ought to, ought to be part of the discussion as well. So I'm going to just emphasize sort of an academic jargony phrase you use. We need to increase access to high mobility neighborhoods. To me, that means we want to allow low-income families to be able to move into neighborhoods where the schools are better and the economic opportunity is stronger and the diversity of the people who live in those neighborhoods is characterized by wealthier people and people who work more and people who have families and two parents and married households. Or we increase that access to those kinds of neighborhoods by allowing for that lefty, dirty word, but really is a good word, gentrification, so that neighborhoods can become more economically diverse. Is that right? Is that a good way of looking at it? Yeah, absolutely. And and I, I think I think both potentially are important. I think a lot of folks on the left get scared about gentrification. They think it's displacing a lot of people, but I, I think the research just doesn't show that that's the case to the extent that we can get more people to move into neighborhoods where potentially they can serve as role models. They can support a more robust retail base, for instance. They can support more institutions, everything from YMCAs to churches to parks. That would all be fantastic in, in my view. And I think trying to trying to find ways for people who are currently in poor neighborhoods to get access to non-poor neighborhoods is really important too. You can do that through more more or less liberal or conservative ways. I think there are really interesting conversations happening across the ideological spectrum around zoning and land use regulations, things like that. There's just a lot we can do, I think, to make housing more affordable in the places that do have better schools for the for the parents that really are doing everything they can to increase their kids' opportunities. And on the second one, the early intervention child care, is this a sort of government program, a bigger expenditure on pre-K or early learning for, you know, infant to three or infant to four? Is that what you're talking about? And, and if so, that's okay. I just want to be clear that 
targeted interventions in childcare or early learning are something you think have potential to help increase upward mobility? So to say they have potential, I think you have to really be a hard-headed reader of the data when you enter into the early childhood space. There is not a lot of evidence that makes you sort of think, oh, this, this would be easy to figure out a conservative or even a liberal early childhood policy that would really move the needle on giving poor kids more opportunities, raising their test scores as they enter school. We don't have a lot of evidence for things that work. And that's a real problem that I think you have to you sort of have to start with the problem that we, that we don't have a lot of examples of things that work. Head Start, you know, probably being the favorite program on the left, just doesn't have very good evidence in favor of it at this point. There are some studies that are not based on randomized trials that sort of do fancy things with the data. And, and if you squint, you know, you can, find, you can find outcomes that are improved for kids that get Head Start. But, but really, for the most rigorous studies that have been done, there's just not a lot there that stays. There, there are some temporary effects that quickly go away within a few years. That said, I think what conservatives have tended to do is stop there and to just say, like, well, what can you do? Nothing works. And I just think that's the wrong approach. I think we can't just throw up our hands and say, well, we sort of tried and, and nothing worked, and so we're going to stop trying. There should be a lot of experimentation done at the local level using institutions of civil society that are rigorously evaluated and will find that very few of those interventions actually work, but we'll hopefully find that a few do work and hopefully we'll find interventions that are easy to scale up. One that I'll just mention that I really am hopeful about is a program that's called Ready for K that the San Francisco schools are using. And it's a really basic program where if you're registering your child for kindergarten, you can check a box and opt into a program where they'll send you text messages a few times a week that offer parents little tips like, you know, if you're giving your kid a bath, like try to have her point to all of the things in the tub that start with H, which is very practical, textable tips. And it's been rigorously evaluated. It's shown that, that it increases parental involvement in their kids' learning and it increases their kids' readiness scores. And that's being expanded to other subjects, to other ages. It can be scaled up, you know, for pennies per person because it's just sending text messages. So hopefully I think the goal would be to try to find some effective interventions that do move the needle rather than just sort of using the convenient excuse that we haven't found things that work well so far and therefore we don't we don't need to worry about it. Now, Scott, you and I both know that in the populations of people who struggle or are low income, there are a variety of races and white people, black people, Hispanic people, Asian people, there are people who are poor of all kinds. But sometimes people in America focus a lot on African-Americans. And I just wanted to ask you, what does race have to do with poverty and mobility in America? Yeah, that's another great question. I think it has to do a lot with it in the sense that when you are looking at entrenched poverty, what, sort of what I mentioned before, that tends to be a lot worse among African-Americans than among whites. And I guess the example I would give is concentrated poverty. When I was at Pew, we commissioned a report from a grad school classmate of mine, Patrick Sharkey, who's a sociologist at Princeton. And he was using a data set of people that were born in the late 50s and early 1960s. And 
was able to sort of see all the neighborhoods that they had lived in throughout their, their childhood. And then he was able to build kind of an aggregate childhood neighborhood poverty rate to describe the neighborhoods that they had lived in from zero to 18. And when he did that, it turned out that two thirds of black kids had grown up in neighborhoods that were so poor that only about 5% of white kids had grown up in such concentrated poverty. And I was sort of stunned by that. But then I, I started thinking about it and I told Pat, well, you know, that these were people that were born, you know, kind of towards the tail end of the civil rights movement. We've actually got data on kids who were born in the 1980s. Can you go back and rerun that same thing using these kids born in the 1980s? And he said, yeah, I can do that. And he came back with a chart that looked almost exactly the same. Just two thirds of black kids growing up in, in concentrated poverty that only about 5% of, of white kids experience. And so th there are some really profound historical and structural factors that I think public policy does have to try to address. There's a bunch that we can do for all poor kids, whether they're black, white, Hispanic, Asian, other and we ought to be pursuing those. I'm not a fan of explicitly, you know, doing race targeting, but I think if you're somebody who cares about entrenched poverty, it's just going to be the case that the policies to reduce that are are going to tend to heavily benefit African Americans more than a lot of other groups, I think, and and that should be a priority, I think. My lens on these things is always a little bit media current events. So I I wanted to ask you based on that so in this administration, we've had, you know, work requirements, a couple different outreach efforts. But one of the, the narratives that's being discussed often these days is, you know, President Trump will say black Americans are better off now than they were four years ago. My economic policies or my efforts have really benefited the lives, both in employment, poverty, those metrics for minority Americans, minority voters. And as someone who studies these issues, is that something that have you seen that in the data? Do you think that's a fair kind of point that this administration can make? Well, I think it's an example of, of there being policies that you know, will benefit everybody. And it's certainly the case that the strong economy during the last four years have benefited African-Americans you know, as much or more than they've benefited other groups. That really is important, the extent to which the administration's policies I think that's a great example of this point that I was making, that there are policies that can benefit people across the board. And certainly the strong economic growth that we've experienced really has benefited African-Americans at least as much as it has other people. We can debate the extent to which the policies of the Trump administration are responsible for the strong economic growth that we've experienced. I think to some extent, you know, you've got to give them credit for some of the provisions in the tax reform bill, for instance and some of the other policies that they've implemented. But certainly, you know, in a lot of ways, the best anti-poverty program does remain strong economic growth. Whether, you know, you could do anything about the fact that, say, among kids who start at the bottom, you know, something like 25 to 35 percent of white kids who start at the bottom end up also being stuck in the bottom themselves when they become adults. That's for white kids. For black kids, it's more like 50 to 60 percent remain stuck in the bottom. I'm less optimistic that the things that the Trump administration has touted or that congressional Republicans have touted will move the needle a lot on that. So it goes back in some ways to this distinction between absolute mobility 
in relative mobility. I think there have been a lot of policies that have been good for the former, but moving the needle on the latter is probably going to require something different, I think. The answer you gave on the race question, which brought us right back to high mobility neighborhoods and high concentrations of poverty being one is the solution and the second is the problem, is telling, is that a more diverse community is going to be helpful to people who struggle, who are poor, whether white or black. But I have one last question for you, Scott. One of the things I came up against when I came to AI was we were focused on helping people who struggle economically at the bottom in America. And so we did a lot of work on that and and we showed things that worked and some things that didn't work. And and then uh, President Trump came along and showed us that the real problem in America that people were struggling with was the sort of anxiety of the lower middle class and their economic difficulties. And I just wondered, do you make a distinction between the challenges of these two different groups? And is your focus on one and someone else is focusing on another? Or how do you think about the two challenges there? One, helping the very poor and the other helping people who might be a little further up economically, but are struggling for lots of reasons? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the way I I tend to think about things, obviously, like there's a degree of arbitrariness in that there isn't a magic poverty line where people below it require a certain set of policies and people just above it require something totally different. So to some extent, I think a lot of policies would help both groups get it boosting productivity growth to levels where it was in the 1950s and 1960s would help unambiguously would help would help both groups. And then there are policies that would probably help some folks lower down more than some folks somewhat higher up. Something like, you know, immigration, whether reducing the number of immigrants that we receive from lower income countries, whether that would boost the wages of people who are working not necessarily poor, but maybe working class and struggling, you know, that might be an example of a, of a policy that would help one group more than the other. But I, I tend to not think about them too differently. I guess my read of the sort of Trump revolution in terms of the folks who were voting for, for him and, and where their anxieties lay is that a lot of it really revolves around more cultural anxiety than economic anxiety. It's definitely the case that the middle class and and I would even say the working class in 2016 and even more so today, you know, was richer than ever before. And I'd go so far as to say that's true, not taking into account any transfers at all from the federal government. The thing that has changed the most, I think, for this working class group is that men do not do as well relative to women as they did in the past because there was a long period in the 1970s and 1980s and even into the 1990s where men's pay really did stagnate or even decline. And it's been rising since, but if you were somebody who preferred the era when you know, men were generally breadwinners and could raise a family on one income, that's probably a little bit harder today than, than it was in the past. And that sort of era went along with a lot of other cultural comforts, I guess I would say, that just aren't here today. You know, lots of our associational life is broken down. We don't do as much together as we used to. The family has gotten a lot weaker than in the past. More recently, there have been obviously things like the opioids epidemic and things like that. But I think there's been a lot of 
misdiagnosis that the Trump voters are more downscale than they are, first of all, but also that the ones who are anxious are anxious mainly because of economic deterioration. All right. We've covered a lot of ground. We went over (laughs) our time and it was a great discussion. We covered poverty, inequality, mobility, race, the working class, Donald Trump, men and women. What's left? <laughs> All the high points. Yeah. Yes. We, didn't, we didn't talk Supreme Court, but probably probably no one yeah, wants we'll to save that for next time. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks very much, Scott. It's really great to have you at AI, and we're looking forward to having you back on Banter and also to all the great work you're going to do. Thanks, Scott. Well, thanks very much. Thrilled to be part of the family. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Please remember to subscribe and rate the podcast. Feel free to send us any feedback or suggestions at banter at AEI.org.